You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. The task of the translator. Hold the concept as a dear hand. Learn its scars, its temperature, the parts hardened by work, the weight with which it will lead or be led. One day, try words on one after the other, like rings. Another day, the first ring chosen, a perfect fit. How joyfully the metal glints for having found, printed on skin, by lack of sun, a band as if the ring had been there all along. Hello and welcome to another edition in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series, my name is Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes or so of conversation and poetry. This week I have the pleasure of introducing not one, but two poets, Juana Adcock and Tessa Baring. The poets have recently published books, Juana's is called Split and Tessa's is Bitten Here, and both of those collections are published by a new imprint, Blue Diode. Juana Adcock is a Mexican-born, Scotland-based poet and translator who works in both English and Spanish. Her first book, Manca, which was published in 2014, is an exploration of our native country's violence. Her translations have been published in Asympto and Words Without Borders, and she's worked on translations for the British Council and Mexico's Council for Culture and the Arts. Tessa Bering is an Edinburgh-based artist and writer. Her poetry has appeared in Gutter Magazine, Rialto and Magma. A pamphlet, Cut Glass and No Flowers, was published in 2017 by Dancing Girl Press. And she's one twelfth of 12, which is an online writing collective of women poets living in Scotland. So uh, Tessa and Moana, uh, I'd like to start by asking you both about not your, your lives as poets as such, but something adjacent to that, your other roles. Moana, um, you're a translator. Tessa, you're an artist. In what ways do these other roles that you occupy, these other um, arts that you, you pursue, how do they feed back into the poetry? Well, I spend my days playing with words. Uh, translating is often just like solving a crossword puzzle and it's it can be quite a lot of fun and it can be quite entertaining getting into the kind of nitty-gritty of how words work and the mechanisms of sentences and so on. So this has a really big influence in how I read and, and how I write. And sometimes even the, sub, the themes of what I'm translating can, can feed into, into my work as well. And then that's my day job and my hobby is music. So I, th- I feel like music helps me translate and it helps me write as well by helping me access a completely other part of my brain, which is a lot more emotional and intuitive. Tessa, how does your art, um, does it feed into your poetry? I think, yeah, no, it does very much. Um, and I feel that, you know, bef- I was making art probably before I was becoming so, yeah, dedicated or, or moved into poetry. But in many ways, to me, it feels like I'm doing the same thing. It's just when I'm making a piece of visual art, I'm using paper, thread, cotton wool, glue, clay whereas as poetry I'm using language, words, but the process feels very much the same. It's about 
um, with poetry. It was my forming relationships with words and building up a, a picture using language and very words which contain a lot of word, well, a lot of image-based words. Is what I'll say. Um, whereas with art, it's the visual is at, at the forefront, but it, the process feels very much the same. You know, that sounded muddled because it, it can it can get quite muddled and quite often. I will use words in my art, and I'll put my art into my poetry. So it's a yeah, very to and fro. Language, of course, is the bread and butter being a poetry. It's the basic building blocks um, of poetry. And I think you both have interesting attitudes or approaches to language and how it's used. And there was a, a great line that jumped out at me when I was reading bit in here, Tessa. Uh, language is froth, and I wondered if we could use that as a jumping-off point for exploring. Mm-hmm what language means to you, particularly as you know, as we were just saying, you're a visual artist who employs words in your art too, so what sort of relationship do you have to language and how does it work its way through your poetry? The line, language is froth, I think when I'm sitting down to write a poem, I'm always aware that I need not be sitting down to write a poem, (laughs) I'm choosing to, and, um, and that language is not, language is Language is at the heart of things, but quite often it is not at the heart of things. It's, uh, I don't know, just in terms of, you know, life, the world, language is quite a, is it, uh, I hesitate to say privileged thing, but it's, not everybody has access to language, I think it is. And so I was, in that particular, I was putting it at this kind of froth, giving it a kind of frothy, froth, frothy position, kind of saying that, you know, really, um, Life, life is kind of messier than language, but what language can do is kind of point to that mess, maybe make sense of that mess, maybe try and unravel it. Um, it can also join in with the mess and be playful. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, language is a wonderful tool for sort of all, of all of life's mechanisms and for art, for living, for, you know, people that don't have access to language. Language can, oh, I'm not sure, it's, um, it's frothy, it's... It's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, I think personally I'm conscious of language being froth because um, my own son has um, very particular speech and language difficulties and so his he can't communicate in a those neurotypical way and so that's sort of with me every day that um, you know, not everyone understands things the same way language is, you know, it can get it right sometimes but language so often will just fly above someone's head or just go in the wrong direction. And so it's, yeah, I'm aware of that. It's something, language is something fragile. It's something that not everyone can access. It's, it's wonderful. It can point to the truth. It can tell lies. It's, mm. it's froth. Yeah, it's <laughs> it has that quality. It's, it's malleable. It's mm. fragile. It's transient. It's, uh, that will do. <laughs> one of your poem called 13 Ways of Inhabiting a Language, mm. What sort of conclusions did you come come to with that poem, or what conditions did you set out? Well, one of the things you learn as a translator is that um, language doesn't exist in the void. It's always a functional thing. So it's always people communicating to each other. Even when you're writing in solitude, your reader might be yourself, or it might be an ideal reader that you're writing for. Another thing that you learn to play quite a lot with is register, and ways of addressing different people. And so with that um, particular poem that you're mentioning, 
I was interested in the work of Janet Paisley and uh, reading the Scots on the page for me is quite difficult because, you know, even though I can understand it, there's something very oral about it um, that I couldn't quite envision the way maybe a native speaker of Scots would. So I asked my Scottish friends to, to record some of her poems for me so that I could listen to them over and over. And their way of approaching it, because they were all uh, Glasgow-based or from Glasgow, they all felt a little bit tentative. They're, they were like saying, oh, but that's not the way I speak Scots, that's not my Scots. Um, and so it was this thing of ownership as well, um, because Janet Paisley's Scots is more East Coast, it has kind of Dundonian and maybe a little bit of Doric in there. Um, I'm glad that I've been in Scotland long enough that I can now kind of distinguish um, the different regions. And I just find it really fascinating to have these really minute differences in accent and in ways of using the language. It's not, it's not only how you spell it, it's not only the words on the page, it's to do with how you use it and how you inhabit it. And I love a phrase that, um, I think it was Liz Bennett who, who gave it to me, it was um, language as motherland. And uh, a, a Tamil poet that I, was, I met in Singapore, her name is Subashi Nikolan, uh, she was saying, you know, you can take everything away from me, but, uh, you know, language, my mother tongue is something that I will always have with me. And it defines us in such a powerful way that... Let's have a poem then. So, yeah, I always get a little bit nervous uh, reading this poem because it has Scots in it and mm. obviously, um, you know, I, I had to teach my mouth how to make those shapes based on listening to my friend's recordings and, yeah, it's always a tricky thing, but I'll give it a shot. Yin te reston, uno te restare resto. Rest the rest y descansar, to forget one's yang and reach for yon yin pond of stillness. Nay wind to stir things up, nothing moving. Deeper yet, swimming down, the water in the burn goes by with hurry a winkle. To the darkest parts, arms out like a sleepwalker's, to reach hasta palpar the wound all wound up in scar tissue and threads the historias de silachadas, frayed, tap frayed tapestries, the stories all unwoven. 10. Lang enough for a holiday. The Scots way of listening holds a peculiar kind of warmth, and I mean that in the way the word has of stretching itself out like a lazy cat across three whole syllables. Warmth. I could curl up in that sound. Mind them where Haim is, in its tiny moon harness tides, the tidings it brings with it, and sleep there all day, boat anchored. Here's to Belang, where a drich blow can dicht off the Sturestravegen, when asked why she decided to stay here, the Berlin traveller responded, it's the way people speak. So I wanted to ask you both about violence. There's violent imagery in, in both the books. There's 
in your book, Iwana, there's there's actual violence, uh, violence against women. But I, I'd like to start by asking you, Tessa, about <laughs> the violence in yours, because I often laughed. Uh, you know, I thought it was funny. Um, you have the first two poems in the book, for example, have images of heads being removed, um, which made me laugh. You know, <laughs> maybe it says more about my sense of humour. But um, so, how does that function in your book? What sort of way should I, as a reader, get it? Um, well, I'm, well, I'm, I'm glad that you that you laughed. I think um, I think humour is very important throughout the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, yes, there is violence, um, and you know, in a way, I'm quite glad to be able to kind of mix violence with humour. Um, like the two don't, um, you know, obliterate obliterate the other, um, because that violence is a is a fact of life. You know, everyone lives with violence. And, um, and I think you know violence against women comes into the book, um, and just the the general violence of just being being a body in the world. I think being a body is a violent thing. Bodies bleed, they bruise, they get cut, they feel pain. You know that, and it's important to me in the writing to get. You know, for me, I want. You know, when I express myself, I want to try and express the whole thing. I want to express the pain with the humour. Um, I want to express the emotion with the the inability to express that emotion. I want to express language, but also I want to express with that language to point more directly to what happens before language, which is the emotion, which is the pain, which is the, the feeling of violence that you have, and that then you you turn to language to you know make sense of it, to communicate it. Um, so yes, I mean, so yes, there's physical violence, there's I've got emotional violence, and and I also think some of the poems are trying to almost like get away from being a body as well. I think that that comes into the into some of the work. Quite often, I'll be writing and think, oh dear, this is getting a bit violent, and so I'll suddenly throw something else in there just to deviate. Not 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 because I want to avoid talking about something but just as a way to remind myself or remind the reader that um, there's always there's always something else happening you know there may be pain violence um, awful things but you know there is also there's always something else that you might not know about but around the corner um, and so it's getting that getting that across that there's ev- everything happens at once violence humor emotion language the absence of language it's it's all there. Mm. <laughs> Before I ask you about that, um, well, uh, could you maybe read a poem, Tessa, that sort of yeah. illustrates that, what you were talking about? Um, Do you yes, well, I'll, I'll read that one there. She's called Embrace Me. Skin is wipe clean, and my jeans fit well. And once I wrote about my dream with men in it, all cotton wool heads. I chopped them off, of course, which was bloody like tampons, and my hands stank of dead petunia. It was a good story, nuanced and delicate, someone said, though they might not have meant it. It's a relief about skin being easy to wipe, and it's good having jeans all over my legs. I like lean words, you know, like spirit, and lightly placed unspeakable things. So, Wara, yes, we're talking about violence, and um, you have a poem uh, called Juarez Stroke. I got the pick. 
thank you. Okay, so violence is very much on my mind. It has been for a good number of years uh, because of the drug war that's, uh, that was going on in Mexico and we're still seeing the consequences of. And uh, in, in my first book, Manca, I explored that quite a bit in, in more general terms. And in this book, I wanted to look more at the aspect of violence against women because it, f it feels like the way women experience violence is more disproportionate. Um, in a society where there's no rule of law, it's the most vulnerable people who experience violence in, in the most intense way. And uh, if you add onto that misogyny and uh, kind of people trafficking and there's, you know, the, the different ways the economy is working in the country at the moment, you get a really grim picture. So I really wanted to draw attention towards that. At the same time, it was difficult to me to write about this topic in English for an English-speaking audience um, because you want to represent it in a way that's kind of fair but also empowering but also informative and it's a lot to ask poetry to do it's not journalism you know so you kind of have to use the poetic tools as well I wanted to draw a parallel between the exploitation of women's bodies and the exploitation of the land. In Mexico there's a lot of mining projects that are coming in and where indigenous communities are being displaced at an accelerated pace and obviously who suffer the consequences of that but it's the women who suffer it the most and they become victims of people trafficking and so on. So I wanted to draw that connection between the mining exploitation of, of the land and, and of the body and, and I think I you know, kind of hint at that slightly in two or three of the poems, not just the Juarez Ecatepec poem. Well, your, your Cinque Terre poem, you write a poem about Cinque Terre, mm -hmm. about the exploitation and, and shaping of the land there and in the background of that poem except it's not really the background, but the background of that poem, there's something about um, immigrants from Africa, I guess, trying to get across the water to Italy. Um, maybe the best thing is to actually read the poem, maybe, okay. rather than hear me yeah. on about it. Italian Tourist Bureau draws up plan for the regeneration of the Cinque Terre landscape. I am land, cut into terraces, my earth. Hugged together by roots my water, inking through gaps my stones, holding together neatly my walls, tidying in vineyards and olive groves. Contadino, you made me beautiful. From afar, I was paradise. From up close, I was back-breaking work. From the golden mean, I was in different market stalls, imports and exports. Contadino, my love, you left me for the city, my stone walls crumbled, my wild boar stamping, my maritime pines invading with their high tops and bare masts swooping in the wind. My legs were too prickly for your taste, oh contadino. You were ridiculed for your dialect of scrub, you ironed it out like a shirt. 
your clean fingernails tapped at the keyboard in air-conditioned rooms atop staircases made of marble carved out from my sister's mountains. And me, abandoned, returning to my wild state, shaking off your cuttings and divisions, with a few landslides and storms to wipe my slate clean. And as the dinghies sink and those fleeing from war drown wordlessly in my picturesque sea, the functionaries hold long meetings at the tourism bureau, puzzling over how to reignite my contadino's love for me. They know I am worth more as a terraced olive grove. We don't have enough hands for all the things we need to hold on to. Both collections uh, have lengthy poem sequences in it, and I thought we'd take some time, a minute or two, to, <laughs> to discuss this. So Tessa, you've got a, a sequence in bit in here called the most emotional woman sequence. Yes, well it began ooh, um, with, there was a painting um, by the artist Paul Clay called um, The Emotional Woman, and it wasn't so much the painting that caught my attention, but the, the title, um, Emotional Portrait of a Woman, but other translations, because the original translation was German, was Portrait of an Emotional Woman. And so I just became interested in the slightly different placed word. Yeah, one translation has it, Portrait of an Emotional Woman, sometimes translated from the German as Emotional Portrait of a Woman. And so it just it caught my attention as just as something that um, perhaps I not struggle with, something that I'm interested in is kind of where where emotion lies in, in a person, how we respond to things emotionally. Is a piece of art, can a piece of art be described as emotional or is it always a response? And so it's just this sort of shift in the idea mm -hmm. of the placing of emotions and and you know, is there such a thing as an emotional poem? Um, or is it always the, the reader responding in an emotional way? But then in the poem, I sort of borrowed imagery from other Paul Clay paintings, but always at the start, at the and so yes, it's 16 stanzas, um, is that the right word? Or 16 sections, um, or 16 poems, um, each one starting with the phrase, I am a most, a most, a most emotional woman. But then I don't necessarily then go on and talk about emotions, I just launch into imagery. And so it's, so the sequence, I guess, is, is, a sh is about the shifting from emotions to imagery and just, you know, ha what happens when you do that and the relationships between emotions and things and images and... Does that, does that make sense? Yes. And, uh, Can we <laughs> um, hear something? It was mostly just to be a, a playful, a playful, um, playful sequence and I enjoy sequences with that. So yes, I'll read, I'll read the first few. Shall I do that? Okay. I am a most emotional woman, drinking coffee in a tight-fitting dress. On the table is an apple and a painted triangle. By morning light, the triangle appears blue. By evening light, deep aubergine. I am a most emotional woman who finds ghosts on the handles of my saucepans. Who finds ghosts on the handles of her saucepans? I do. What uneasy thoughts they give me. I wash my hair to forget the shapes of their mouths. I turn on a weather forecast for somewhere in the North Pacific. I am a most emotional woman who loves the proximity of unfurnished rooms full of nothing but white sheets and winged heroines. There might be an upturned colander, 
an engraving of a pear tree, or a word such as, promise me one thing, just one thing. I am a most emotional woman who conceives of things ironically. Things like self-portraits, dinner, sometimes sex, never wretchedness. I am a most emotional woman, and I no longer look at anyone. There are cigarettes and rose hips crushed onto the pavement. A foundation can give way at any moment. I am a most emotional woman, how insistent I am, how swollen. Lock me in a house where I can listen to the flight of hawk moths, dress up in my own shadows, put my arms around my own shoulders, keep marigolds on a windowsill. So yes, I think it's kind of the first line, I am a most emotional woman, that's that's the that's my kind of that's my presence. And but yet I don't want to necessarily talk about sit here talking about my emotions. It's just sort of acknowledging or just sort of being there in my emotional self, but then, but then kind of looking out mm-hmm. and just noticing things and just, and just it was just playing with effect. And so, Anna, you you have several longer sequences in Split. But the one I wanted to ask you about is the opening poem sequence, uh, the Serpent Dialogues. It's it's really quite a, a different piece for for stars. It's mostly in prose, and then it has footnotes. That are in po- poetry, and then also it is as it says, it's dialogues. It's it's kind of like a a mashup of play, mm-hmm. poetry, prose. Tell me about the serpent dialogues. How does it work? Mm, where do I start? <laughs> Who, who's the, there's a basically there's a there's a, a female character and there's there's a snake. Mm-hmm. What's their relationship? Okay, so this. I'll just say the kind of personal anecdote to led to that led to writing this uh, long poem. Um, I was doing a writing retreat in Italy, and it was unexpectedly a solitary retreat. All the other artists cancelled last minute, so I was suddenly found myself alone in this very remote uh, place, a village in the mountains, and. Uh, I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to cope. Um, But I ended up finding that I was quite often in dialogue with myself. Um, Sometimes I would go out, I would write all day and then go out for a walk in the evening uh, through the forest, next to a river or whatever. And thoughts would come to me and I would record them on my phone. But because I didn't want to look crazy, I would hold the phone like I was talking to someone. And then I realised it was almost like I was calling myself to find out what I thought about things. And I just found that, well, I've always found that dialogue is a really important part of literature. When you're reading, you're always responding. Um, When you're writing, you're kind of addressing it subconsciously or not um, to someone or to you know, an ideal reader. So that's how that started. And and I actually had an encounter with a snake, which was kind of scary. And, you know, that also brought me kind of face to face with my fears. And, and uh, you know, I, I had this idea of, okay, well, if the snake is there, maybe, maybe I'd like to get to know the snake. And so that was the start of of the dialogue, uh, asking, thinking about what I would ask the snake, what, they, what the snake would respond. 
and it became quite a fun, <laughs> a fun exercise. Uh, as a, also as a way to kind of uh, explore our, our relationship with the other. We're always in relationship not only with ourselves but with the world around us. And it's uh, I, I love Anne Carson has a wonderful phrase that says uh, civilization is a function of boundaries. We're always kind of negotiating our own boundaries and you know, in, in our, our encounters with, a, with another person or another being, uh, with nature, um, we're kind of negotiating that boundary and, and finding a way to, to find our place there and the place of the other. And I like uh, Donna Haraway has a, a really interesting piece of writing called The Companion Species Manifesto where she talks about uh, humans' relationships with their dogs, with their pets, and she talks about dogs as the kind of absolute other. It's a companion that's always there with you, but you can never really know their thoughts. You can imagine their thoughts or kind of learn to interpret their thoughts or their emotions, but you don't really have access to that through language, and I always found that really fascinating. And in the serpent dialogues, it's it's a little bit more extreme because we think of a snake as a kind of dangerous uh, animal. Um, at least when we encounter it in nature, it's not really a traditional pet. It's not very cuddly. But then there are people who have snakes as pets. And the footnotes came from a poet that I translated a few years ago, a Mexican poet who who wrote this very long poem again, and that had footnotes and poems in the footnotes, so I, I, I really wanted to copy that idea. And his, his poem was about, it was written from the point of view of a stray dog. So it was almost like the footnotes were subverting who the master was and who the dog was, or what's the main thing and what's the marginal, what's the text and what's the subtext, obviously. So it was just a, a really fun way to arrange things and, yeah, do something different. Uh, Tessa, mm. uh, as we've established, the title of your collection is Bit in Hair, yes. uh, which is an intriguing, intriguing phrase or expression. Mm. It appears twice in the yes. book. Uh, philosophy is no consolation for Bit in Hair. I don't want you to give me a giveaway all your secrets. I don't want you mm. know to pull back the curtain <laughs> and you know uh, mm. give too much away. But what does what does Bit in Hair mean to you in the context of this? The collection. Um, well, it, I mean, it became the title precisely because it did, um, as a phrase, it crept into I think about four poems. Um, I think I didn't. I think I crossed it out and changed changed it into the poems so that it wouldn't. Um, yeah, I thought two poems was enough to have bitten hair in. You've been sure you quote so off the phrase. Yes. <laughs> so it just so it just kind of almost emerged as as the, as the title. I mean, I think as as a writer, um, the kind of imagery that I like and which and, and which moves me as a reader is imagery that has both kind of precision about it, but also a degree of discomfort. Perhaps that's sort of how how I experience. I know that, no, that no, that's just the the kind of the kind of, that's kind of language I like, kind of language that is at once precise, but also there's a slight uncertainty, discomfort. Something you're not quite sure of there. So to me, bitten hair um, 
you know, had, had, had that quality. And so I thought, yes, that would be, a, that would be the title. Um, a friend of mine recently joked and said, oh, what's that chewed wig book that you're putting on? <laughs> <laughs> That's a and sequel. Like, yes, so it's a maiden. But, but there is this, but, and I kind of thought, oh, but, but, but that kind of, you know, chewed wig is something, it's, it's messy, it's mushy, it's slightly repulsive. Mm. Whereas, <laughs> whereas, whereas bitten hair, um, you know, has that degree of something, and it's, and it's light, the kind of the lightly placed unspeakable things, I think maybe bitten hair, is one of those, and it also, and so it's going back slightly to the violence. There's also those I once watched the film Alexander Platz. Better than Alexander yes, Platz, all ten errors of it. Not all of it, no, I couldn't bear it. But, um, yeah, I've watched <laughs> the it all. God. <laughs> the bit I found m- the hardest thing I found to watch in the part that I did, there's all the awful violence against women, but there was one, there's one scene where for at least four minutes the camera focuses on. Um, a man's mouth and he's got a hair stuck on his tongue and he just can't work, you know, I mean that happens sometimes, he just can't work out where, where it is, he's trying to get it and there's awful things going on and he's just, um, and, so, and that, that is a, an image from film that's always stayed with me, it's like the most horrific thing I had to sit and watch was this hair on this man's tongue, but while, while the title didn't come out of that, this, it's just that, just the way sometimes an image just, just gets you and you... That that's the one that um, that's the one that starts to matter. Mm-hmm. And so there it is. When I just wanted to, to finish our, our conversation by asking, as you've alluded to, you're from Mexico originally, um, and you know, uh, as a Scots person, I was interested in people's journeys to to Scotland. How did you come here, and how did you come to have a writing life here? My dad's actually from England and I was brought up bilingual and with my earliest writing attempts I always felt like I was translating myself from the other language no matter which language I was trying to write in and at some point I thought it would be interesting to try and write in English and Scotland seemed a more exciting place to be because linguistically and politically it just seemed to have things that were more interesting to me, you know, like people here may, may be more familiar with being bilingual and, and um, I don't know, it just seemed like a more fertile ground. And uh, yeah, so I came here, I did a master's in creative writing at the, at the University of Glasgow. I tried writing in English and ended up writing in Spanglish because it was hard to do the switch and then I went back to Spanish and wrote my first book in Spanish because I thought it was all too much. But now I find myself constantly kind of writing and rewriting in one language and then the other. And then what, what comes out ultimately is some sort of distillation between, between both languages. And that wraps up another episode of the Scottish Poetry Libraries podcast series. A few thank yous before we go. So first thank you to our poets, Juana Adcock and Tessa Baring. Thank you very much. Um, both of their books uh, are published by Blue Diode. Um, so a reminder, um, Split is by Wana Adcock and Bitten Here is by Tessa Baring. Uh, a thank you to Will Campbell who did the music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show. And a thank you to you, listener, for tuning in once again. It only remains to be said that if you want to stay in touch with what the Scottish Poetry Library does between podcast episodes, you can check out our website, 
scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We're on Twitter at By Leaves We Live. Our Facebook page is simply Scottish Poetry Library. And we have an Instagram account, which I think the name of is SPL Scotland. So without any further yakking on my behalf, here's one last poem uh, to see the show out. Thank you. Sugar. What they said was that I need to take it seriously, that eels should be brought alive, that when I imitate a prehistoric creature, I must immerse myself in the idea completely and not treat it as a kind of play-acting. I find it hard, though, to get down on all fours, to grunt and pour the ground without laughing. Buy your eels alive, they said, so I do. Their bodies are strong. I like to think they love me. They don't love me. I wear mohair jumpers covered in ribbons. I wear denim gloves, which people compliment for the tight pink stitching and studs. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.